Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be in our midst this morning. We pray that your spirit would be present and active as we uh, dig into your word. Lord, we pray that our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears would be open and willing to uh, see and hear what you would have us uh, see and hear. We pray that it's only uh, your word and the truth that is found in it that uh, goes forth uh, this morning. And we pray that you would uh, go with us as we come from this place into the week, into the week, trying to apply what you would have us to learn today into our lives. Lord, it's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Romans 12, verse 3 to 8. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to get them on out. Follow along. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as is in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. One of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the power of your spirit. For your glory. Amen. The first thing that we must do in order to understand what's going on here in Romans chapter 12 is to remind ourselves of Romans chapters 1 through 11. Now, I did this last week, I'll do it today, and I'll probably sporadically as we continue through to the end of Romans, uh, we'll make mention of this, but I think at least at this beginning stage of starting back up in Romans 12, we need to make sure that we're on, uh, on the right track. Uh, Romans is not meant to be uh, divided up into a bunch of little sections that have nothing to do with each other. It is a letter that Paul wrote with the intention of it being understood and seen in one movement. Right? We have we have like an hour and ten minute sermon services, not sermons, services here at Christ Church. When Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Rome, they were probably there all day talking about this book. Okay, so this we 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 can never forget that Romans is one big cohesive unit. And what comes before chapter 12 is absolutely vital for us to understand what Paul is saying in chapter 12. And, and I said last week, I'll say again this week, and I'll say again as we continue through, the first 11 chapters of Romans are Paul's theological, heady uh, treaty 
on what the gospel is. So Paul, in the first 11 chapters, is addressing the cognitive realities of what the gospel is. Meaning, everything that happened before this, or pretty much everything that happened before this in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, was meant to be in the head. It's meant to be thought. We were supposed to think and to reason and to, and to work our way through in the mind, work out what the gospel is. To, to boil down 11 of the most theologically rich chapters in all of literature down to about two or three sentences, here we go. Paul says that we are all sinners condemned to death because of our unrighteousness. We are all in desperate need of salvation, and that salvation comes to us through God the Father, through His Son Jesus Christ coming to this earth and dying the death we rightly deserve. This, this act is then freely given to those who have faith in Him, those who believe in this work and who relinquish control over salvation of their own lives into the hands of Jesus. And Paul says we are justified by faith. And then from this point, once we've been justified by faith, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. We are clothed in the baptism of Jesus and we put on Christ and we are changed and transformed. And in the words, uh, in, in some more theological language, we are sanctified or we are continually being made like Christ. We are justified by our faith. We are set right in God's eyes only and exclusively through the work that Jesus does. And then we are transformed in our lives as we live from the point of justification until the point of death and glorification. We are being made into the image of Christ through the power and the work and the movement of God through the Holy Spirit. This is essentially chapters 1-11. through 11. It is a theological understanding of what God has done for us. So Paul takes this 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 thought, and he applies the gospel to his thinking. Now in chapters 12 to 16, the remaining five chapters, Paul is going to take the thoughts that he has just taken, and he is going to bring them to bear on life in its realities. Chapters 12 through 16 are the application chapters of Paul's theological gospel presentation. What does it mean that this has happened in my life. Why, why am I gonna, or why am I gonna continue on in this life? What am I gonna do after I've been justified? Well, here are what Paul thinks you should do. Here are the things that Paul thinks you should do. The activities, the actions. It is great and absolutely fundamentally important for us to start by thinking through the gospel. But if we don't continue on through Romans and see the practical implications of this, we've actually completely missed the point of the gospel to bring to reality the salvation that we all share. Before we look at our text, we have to address just two more things. We have to address number one, or we have to address one more thing that comes in, in two parts. We have to address the the mistakes when thinking about the theological implications of the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? I am justified by faith alone. It is not by my works. It's not by... We have to address the mistakes that kind of fall out in not thinking properly of the gospel. 
Number one, the mistake number one when we think about the gospel and we think about justification by faith alone is that we say, okay, now that I have been saved by Christ, uh, nothing matters. Because Jesus does it all, it has absolutely nothing to do with me or my, my actions before, during, after, nothing. If it's just Jesus and his blood alone that saves me, then obviously I can do whatever I want. I have a in, in the terms of, of Scripture, I have a license to sin. The theology calls this antinomialism. This is, this is false. This is a false, uh, false teaching that Satan brings into our lives and tries to, tries to convince us that, that the work that Christ does doesn't affect my life. The other false understanding about what this means to be saved by Jesus and Jesus alone is that because Jesus is the means of which I find salvation or justification. And the Spirit is the power by which I am changed and transformed. And, and, and really, I have no part to play in all this, all this action, all these, all these things that are happening to me. I'm, I'm a passive, uh, passive participant, and, and I don't need to exert any effort or will or make any decisions or, or choose right over wrong. Eventually, it'll just happen to me, right or wrong. This is what's so important about chapters 12 through, through 16 of Romans. Paul says, actually, actually that's, that's an untrue evaluation of what does it mean that the Spirit is acting upon your life. The Spirit brings to bear, brings to the, to the forefront of our minds, the realities of the, of the outcome of the gospel in your life. So if you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then... Action happens. You know, again, we remind ourselves, and this is what the challenge is, remind ourselves that we don't put the cart in front of the horse. We don't think that, that it's by my strength or my power that any of this will take place. It's, it's only because the Spirit dwells in me, but because the Spirit dwells in me, action must and will take place. And so this is what Paul's really fundamentally going to be talking about for about five chapters. Right? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he says, Therefore I appeal to you, brothers, because of the mercies of God, to present yourselves as holy sacrifices, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, as spiritual worship to God. And then he says, here's what you're going to do. Here's, here's what that means. You're going to be living sacrifices. Wow, am I a living sacrifice? Well, I'm a living sacrifice by, by not being conformed to the image of the world, but being transformed by the renewal of my mind. What does that mean? That means that, that in life, after my justification, as I'm being sanctified by the work of the Spirit, I am going to look, examine, and exert myself to see what is conformity to the world, to see what conformity to sin and to death is, and I'm going I'm to leave that life and turn away from it, and by renewing my mind, which means I'm going to continually challenge myself, I'm going to renew my mind, and I'm going to be transformed by the Spirit of God. This is going to help me to discern and to figure out and to see the will of God and to see what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the reality is, is that by and large, that's still a head thing. So Paul says, here's some practical things. 
Now, it might seem a little bit strange where he goes first, but I think as we travel through Romans 12 to 16, this will make a bit more sense. He says, now, because you have been justified and you are currently being sanctified, because of all this, you are going to worship God with your actions. And here is one of the ways you can do so. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to you, to, to everyone among you, do not think more highly of uh, highly than he ought to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, excuse me, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul starts off by saying, by the grace given to me. And I think this becomes a little bit more clear what he means by this as we look at the rest of this. I think what Paul is saying is that, I, that, that Paul has been given a gift that he does not deserve. That's what grace is. It's being given a gift that you do not deserve. You do not deserve the blood of Jesus, but it is given to you as a gift, freely, un, unawares of who you are and what you've done, but simply because of God. Paul has been given a gift, a, a particular job or a task or a skill that he didn't rightfully deserve nor rightfully have before it was given to him. He was given this gift. Well, what is this gift? Paul's job or Paul's role in the church is he's the great evangelist. He's the one who endures beatings and shipwrecks and, and floggings and eventually he's put to death. But he travels around the world and he boldly proclaims this gospel message and he's challenged and confronted by Satan and, and what Satan has done in this world. And this is Paul's gift. It's his grace. It's not because Paul is some great man that had this skill set beforehand. No, absolutely not. It was something that was given to him. And because of this, and by this gift given to Paul, he is now going to tell us things. Because that's his job. He is, in essence, he's a teacher. He's going to teach us about what is going on. And this is, a, this is something that not only uh, he excels at, but he, he uh, excels at because of the work of God in his life. What is the first thing he teaches? Don't think too highly of yourself. Bummer. First thing he says is, man, you're... You got a big old head. I think there are two two realities, again, on on this right understanding. There's two failures that fall aside from a right view of ourselves. Number one is that we think that we're more important than we actually are. Heaven forbid any of us think that that God can accomplish any task in this world without us. Just a clarify things he can and actually more often than not he does despite our efforts to be better than we think we are or better than we actually are maybe that's the one side he says don't think too highly of yourself don't don't think of yourselves as having these gifts and because you had these gifts god came and used you he said oh oh you're such a great person that I, it would be foolish of me not to use you no, rather, I think what Paul is saying is actually recognize where this gift comes from. Recognize that, that it's not because of you, but it's because of God's work in you. I've shared this story before. It's been a number of years, so some of you maybe are new. And I think that I have been called to be a, a preacher, a pastor. I think that's what God has 
gifted me in. I don't, I don't, I don't see myself with many other, many other skills that are beneficial to the, to the kingdom of God. But if I were not a pastor, some people have asked me that before. If you weren't a pastor, what would you do? And some people might think, oh, maybe you're, a, maybe you'd just be a public speaker, or you would, you would talk in front of people. I wouldn't. I'm 100% confident that I would have nothing else to say. The only reason why I get up here and have any confidence is because of the Word of God. I don't, I don't have anything else to tell you. I just have the Word, and I, and I have confidence in the Word. And because I have confidence in the Word, I can talk to you for 30, 40 minutes a Sunday. And to prove that this isn't my gift, before I went into ministry, whenever I was at, I was at Wayne College, my first year of college, and I took a speech class, oral communications, and I got a, I got a D minus. I failed the class, and now I speak regularly. Right? It's not because of me; it's because of gifts given to me by God that I don't deserve, nor did I have previous. I could be puffed up. I could think arrogantly of myself and think that God needs me. No, He absolutely doesn't. I know this because most of the sermons that I preach are complete blunders, and yet people are being changed and transformed by the work of the Spirit. But Paul says that there's two sides to this. He says, don't think too highly of yourselves, but rather <clears throat> to think with sober judgment. Don't think yourself too big, but also don't think yourself too small. You are not worthless. Satan tells you that a lot. I think more people think too little of themselves than people think too highly of themselves. Maybe that's just my own observations, but I think so often we hear we hear we hear, we hear things like Paul talking about how he's the chief of all sinners, how he's a wretched man, and I go, how could Paul possibly say that? Look at me. If Paul only knew me, he might be saying the same things. I'm worthless. You know how I know you're not worthless? Because, because God in his, in his love and goodness sent his son, his only son, to the earth to die for you. And if God thinks that you are worthy enough to have the blood of his son covering you, you aren't worthless. And really, how dare we think otherwise? You have worth because God sees it in you. And God not only sees it in you, but instills it in you and builds you because of it. So no, don't think too highly of yourselves, but rather with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. <clears throat> God has given each of us particular, particular tasks, jobs, roles, skills to use for the glory of the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. Not for your own glorification, not for the glorification of the church that you attend or the business that you run, but for the glorification of God. God has gifted you and, and instilled in you a grace that is not yours. So Paul says, think of yourself in sober judgment. Recognize yourself. Look at yourself. Observe what God has done in your life. Not because you're special, different and better than everybody else. And not because you're worthless, but because God sees exactly in you what he has implanted in you. Verse 4, he says, for 
Here's the reason. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And I think Corinthians, he talks in similar fashion, talks about how how each member of the body has its own particular role. A hand can't see and eyes can't walk. We need all of them to properly function as the body of Christ. And sometimes we think the the most important things or the most important people are the ones that are seen. Leaders and preachers and, and Sunday school teachers. But, but, but far too often we, we forget those who clean the building and those who love the poor and less fortunate and drive us to service. You know, Paul says, look, look, it's, it's very important that you see in yourself what God has gifted you with so that the body of Christ can function as God has designed it to function. I'm going to say this right up front, brothers and sisters of Christ Church. We do a lot of things that I think are well here at Christ Church. I think we're welcoming. I think we're loving. I think we're, I think we're compassionate. I think when people are hurting, we, we tend to be there for each other. But if I'm going to see a, an error, I say we are not united as the body of I think we lack this. I think we lack this all over the church as a, as a whole. But, but I think if we're honest, we lack it here also. I think many of you have gifts and skills that you're too afraid to use because you think of yourself as worthless. So Paul says, no, look, we, we need to recognize that, it, that the body is made up of many members, many individual members, each having a different function. He says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace, the free gift given to you that you don't deserve, given to us, let us use them. Let us use these gifts. We're talking on Wednesday in 1 Peter about how how the things that we do in 1 Peter, we were talking about most of the the evening, we were talking about how we, we... I should submit to the authorities that God places in this world, but we don't submit to those authorities for the purpose of uh, of the authorities or for the good of the authorities. We don't submit to the to the laws and the rules in this country because this country is somehow something special. We submit to it for the glory of God. The same is true here. We submit to the body of Christ not for the glory of this church or the glory of us as individual members, but for the glory of God. And so let us use them. Well, Ryan, what gifts do I have? I think that every one of us has at least in some portion everything that follows. And in particular portions, At least one. Follow me. It says, if prophecy, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, and every one of you has just went, I'm not a prophet. Right? Do we all say that? I'm not a prophet. 
That's mostly because we misunderstand what prophecy actually is. I bet you most of us, our working definition of prophecy is that, is that we're going to tell something of the future. That's not what prophecy is. 2% of all prophetic statements are either about Jesus in the future, meaning Old Testament future Jesus when he comes to the earth the first time, or future Jesus when he comes to the earth the second time in the, in the conclusion, revelation, right? 2% of all prophetic writing, which prophetic writing makes up about uh, a third of all of Scripture. 2%. Prophetic writing is not about guessing the future. It's not even about foretelling the future. Prophecy is about, it's about taking the Word of God spoken and applying it or bringing it to bear on today. So God in the law, in, Devita, in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and this is where we primarily find the law of God in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God says a, a, a lot of things. One of the things he says quite often is, He's like, look, if you follow me, I will be your God and you will be my people. But when you, when you, when you fall away from me, I'm going to send oppression. You're going to be defeated. And so people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they, they look at this and they see that the God speaks them and calls them into speaking this into the community. They say, they say, look, we're sinning. We're falling away from God. And God told us in the old, in the old times, He told us in His Word, He said, look, if you stop following me, oppression is going to come. And that oppression is going to look like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Loved ones, in Jesus Christ, we are all, in some sense, prophets. We take the Word of God that we should be daily diving into, and we take it and we bring it to bear on both ourselves and those who are around us in our spheres of influence. We bring to bear the Word of God today. You are all, in some measure, prophets. Now some are given this as their particular gift. I think that the majority of the things that I do as a preacher fall under this category. My job is to not just show you what the Word of God says, but to bring it to bear on your lives. Some Sundays are more and some Sundays are less of that. But that's ultimately what I think my main job is. And there are many of you in this room who teach Sunday schools, and you're doing the exact same thing. Not all of us are good prophets. Not all of us are, are supposed to be vocational preachers. That's not at all what we're saying. But we all are in some sense. And some of us, we don't recognize it in ourselves. Some of us don't know that we're actually... Quite, quite apt to explaining what the Scripture means in the day-to-day -day life. Let us use them. He goes on, if service, if service, in our serving. There are a number of people who very quietly and purposefully quietly clean this building. Take the trash out. Pay attention to the finances. See needs in the community and bring them to, to the attention of the church. We are all, in some sense, servers. But others are given particular gifts and skills that make them really aware of it. The one who teaches, 
in his teaching. This differs from prophecy in that teaching is explaining what it means. Prophecy is bringing it to bear on reality. Again, many people who are in this church teach. Many of us have the ability to teach those who aren't a part of this church and at times don't take that opportunity. Myself, more than any of you. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. Anybody exhort in here? Anybody know what exhort means? In, in essence, it means confront. Some people are really good at speaking truth and love. It is part of their nature. It's part of who they are. We are all called as brothers and sisters in Christ to go to other brothers and sisters in Christ and confront sin in their lives. All of us are. But some of us are particularly gifted in, in ways. And I think probably more than anything else that we uh, lack in, this is probably one of them. I'll just, be blunt. I'll just be blunt with you. It's very rare that I've ever confronted any of you for the sin that maybe I know that you have in your lives. And I guarantee you that you do the same thing to each other. And I know, in my own brain, I can probably pick you out. I know which ones of you who are particularly gifted, grace given to you by God in this area. You can speak truth and love naturally. The one who contributes in generosity. Remember how I said we all have all these things. Are you ready for a sermon on tithing? When Paul's speaking, he's speaking to a group of people that is 90% absolutely dirt poor. <coughs> they don't literally have, they literally have no money. And I use the word literally, literally. Not how we normally use it. 90% of the people that Paul writes to do, do, don't have, do not have a penny to their names. The, the work that they did earlier in the morning, they were paid for. They took that money. They went to the store and they bought a loaf of bread that they've already eaten. They don't have any money. 10% of the population had 80% of the money in the ancient world. And Paul says, for those of you who have the ability, who have the gift given to them by God to give of their finances for the glory of the kingdom of God, give generously. Now, what does that mean for us? Only 20% or 10% of the people here should be given to the church? No. We live in the United States, which makes us the richest people on the planet ever. We should all give in generosity. Now, some have been blessed more than others. That is a reality. Some have more, some have less. And we should give in generosity to the, to the amount that God has gifted us. One who leads with zeal, with passion. Not begrudgingly, but because we recognize that leadership is extremely valuable. One of the reasons why the people of Israel failed so much in the Old Testament because their leaders were boneheads. They failed and led the people to fail. Lead with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The one who gives 
who, who, or rather the one who withholds wrath when wrath is deserved. It's your fault. There are times when, when those people who need to be confronted in their sin don't need to be condemned. They condemn their self, themselves enough. They need love. They need mercy. And again, just like people who are, can, can speak the truth in love just naturally, these, these people tend to be the same people who, who have the ability to not crush when crushing will not help. So here is my challenge. Here's my challenge. This week, think about what God has gifted you. Some of you might already have said, God hasn't. Yes, He has. He has gifted you. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are a you are gifted by the work of the Spirit in your life. So examine yourselves with sober judgment, recognizing what has God shown me, what has God led me to do and to say and to think and to to act upon. Some of you will get this quickly because God has already shown it to you. Others of you won't. And that's okay. There is a reason why we live in the body. There's a reason why you come to church you don't just come to church to hear me. You come to church to hear the Word of God, and the Word of God then becomes applied into your life by the living together of the saints. So if you're one of the, the probably many people in this room who don't know what God has gifted you in, I am always willing and ready to talk. And I know there are many other people in this building who are as well. If you're not sure, maybe come on Wednesday nights and we can talk about it. I don't know what I'm gifted in. I can see some of your gifts in me. I can help. Others can too. So, because we have been justified by the blood of Christ and we are being sanctified by the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, let us use the gifts that God has given us for the glory of God and His kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank and we praise you for the work of your son, Jesus. For his death, for his resurrection, for the new life that that brings each one of us. We have placed our faith in him. We thank you that you have called us to be changed, to be living sacrifices, to be spiritual worship. We thank you that you have called us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And not only that you called us to this, but you have empowered us to it as well. Lord, we thank you that we live in a community of like-minded people who have the same salvation in their lives. We thank you that you have given us a purpose and a mission to spread the gospel into into the depths of this world. Lord, we pray that you would challenge us here at Christ Church to be to be more unified as a body to be stronger as we recognize what God has gifted us in. Lord, give us the ability to be sober judges of who we are and what you have done for us and what you have given to us. Help us to see and to recognize the gifts in our lives 
and help us to be bold and strong to use them. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you most of all for your son, Jesus. And it's only through his name that we pray.